Hello all, welcome to the Lunar Sea Spire Cartoon Fan Podcast. This is episode 493, and today we'll be talking about Jargard from Summer Camp Island. I'm GC13. And I'm David. Ah, so we finally see the other half of <laughs> Susie's little storybook tale, what was happening. Not that far away from her, actually. She almost made it to Mildred before the uh, fateful Angelying. I I love that this whole story is framed through Mildred's friend, <laughs> the the ghost. I like that that's his name. And I I am completely flummoxed at you know really who this little ghost is, but I guess we'll never need to know. It's just you know Mildred's partner when she needed it. We know exactly who he is. Mildred tooted him out and he hung around. Right, but like what memory or aspect? Just a negative feeling? I guess her anxiety? Yeah, he was. He came out when she was upset about uh, how she was feeling about how Susie treated her, which I guess is why he's always trying to comfort her. I guess the belches are deep-seated anxieties, and uh, farts are more short-term matters? <laughs> I suppose so. Although you'd think that you know, physiologically speaking, that should be the opposite. Eh, well, who can say with a witch's digestive tract? <laughs> I suppose so. Well, they have their own built-in counselors, so I don't think we need to overanalyze it too much. <laughs> yeah, I, I I, did appreciate getting the other side of the story. I like that the bread was a prominent feature of both. It is pretty sad that Mildred, you know, ate her way to more sadness. Because she couldn't stay awake on any of these boats. Yeah, well, um, we we see Bread is not a harbinger of good things magic-related, apparently. I I guess the pale dog, um, probably not intentional, but ooh, the sugar crash she gets after after all that transitions. (laughs) I mean, there is something symbolic about Bread here. It can't be a total coincidence. I, again, there's so many symbols in this show to go back on and really trying to understand but why magic needs to be eaten with a baguette specifically i'll never know um and the fox in this episode doesn't make it more clear to me why everyone's out to eat this jelly he's not a fox he's a pale dog he's just a pale dog yep we have the striped horse the bearded sheep the pale dog he's credited as pale dog yeah he's not particularly foxy looking either so well, I suppose maybe he is, in a sense. But he's not a grandpa. <laughs> no. Uh, but yeah, I don't know. He just, if I'm to understand you know, him through other contexts, he's just legit hungry. Dude just wants to eat magic because it's straight up delicious. Okay. And he, he is quite experienced in doing this. He's, he's done this before. He knows it goes perfectly with a baguette. I love him just grumbling. Man, I hope that bakery on the other side of the tundra is still open. <laughs> it, yeah, that aspect is very children's storybook. You know, like, just that there's this kind of simple villain that simply wants to take advantage of someone, you know, a kid who is willing to give up her magic. And it's like, yeah, there's always people willing to trick you and eat your magic. But it's not really deeper than that, <laughs> right? But it is such a storybook fairy tale in that regard. Like, he would fit right in with the kind of people who would be trying to take advantage of Pinocchio or a Little Red Riding Hood if he could muscle in on the wolf's turf, you know? Yeah, 
And then, like, the consequence of her, you know, getting rid of her magic, because, you know, he may not trick her into getting the jelly, but he does kind of screw up, help her screw up her own life in, you know, just being the jar guard for decades and decades. Uh, But, yeah, I mean, in any other show, that would be, like, way darker. (laughs) And here, uh, it's not really dark. She just, she forgets her memory. That part's kind of sad. It's sad to see... uh, (laughs) Me's friend, the ghost, <laughs> renamed, sort of have to disappear for a while because, you know, he feels hurt and her memory's gone. But he never abandons her. Yeah, well, which, unfortunately for her, she, it seems like she does not welcome his presence at all. Oh no, she's she is scared of ghosts and she's with him there for like 200 years for crying out loud you'd think she'd get used to him and again that's i mean it's a little dark it's just not really presented that way but like that's terrible that she's just been in this shack alive with no contact with anyone and i mean no evidence of any hobby or activity at all literally just sitting around and then being afraid of the ghost whenever he comes by to check on her that's that's bad. <laughs> mm. That is no life for anyone. I wonder if she gets out and uh, I, I guess she wouldn't go and hang out at the bar. Otherwise, the pale dog might come back. Yeah, I mean, going out wouldn't be good. But I mean, this fate that she has gotten, I don't know that it feels quite earned for her. Like poor Mildred. Oh, this is this is definitely not something that she deserved in any sense of the story this is this is something that was done to her by uh those who were seeking to hurt her i i think it's pretty clear to me that you know when she gives up the magic she gives up a very important part of herself therefore she loses the memory as well because you know she's a different person now right i think that's that is the very interesting bit here how closely tied her identity and memory is to the magic Seeing her, you know, trying to throw her magic off into the ocean kind of made me stop and think for a second, like, okay, you know, Mildred wanted to get rid of her magic. This is a hard choice to parse as to, does the show think this is good or bad or neutral? Because, I mean, Mildred has a point that her magic hasn't brought her a lot of joy in her life. Now, we've seen, you know, obviously that Susie's position is very mean and you know her parents even were were somewhat concerned right like they were literally went to the frozen north to you know try to help with this problem right as Susie famously blames her for and she's not even completely wrong in a sense so you know could Mildred choose to like not have magic like she gets punished pretty hard for making that choice but it also doesn't feel like a choice because she is a child who you know got frozen immortality really pretty much to blame just for Susie and she acted very impulsively (laughs) yeah like it just it feels like yeah Susie kind of screwed her over and then she's trying to make the best of this situation and you know she ends up with a wiped memory stuck in a lodge in the North Pole for centuries I don't think we can blame Susie completely. She's only 15 herself. She was very infuriated about what happened on what should have been a very special day for her. And if it had not been for that angry, riotous mob separating them, they would have made up and gone on as sisters. It's pure tragedy. 
I mean, that's the thing. It's pure tragedy. And again, it reinforces too, like in the same episode where she's considering getting rid of her magic, she's also terrorizing a bunch of towns, (laughs) including Paris. Like, I mean, she's temperamental (laughs) and she's, you know, putting people's lives at risk, either their lifestyle or their lives themselves, you know? Yep, she does a lot of damage. Yeah, it's it's not great. <laughs> like, and there's no one to help, you know, ease her. So, except for this ghost, who again, yep. is not doing his best because he's giving her the bread. <laughs> yeah, he can he can calm her down. He doesn't realize until much later what's causing her to, to zonk out. I, I guess whatever puts her to sleep puts him asleep. Because I don't see him eating bread, but he said the bread is what made them go to sleep. So, <laughs> Yeah. I have a question for you about the timeline of this. So when Mildred's friend is telling the story to that squirrel guy, he said that the story starts about 330 years ago, which would be about the day of the riot. So that puts Susie's childhood as being in the 1660s. But then when Mildred is telling... Her story to the pale dog, she says it's a 130-year-long story. So are we to believe that while Susie was touring the world, going on the the Mildred tornado tour uh, for 80 years, but there was an additional 50 years before she picked up Mildred's scent? Okay, let's see. Can we piece that together? Well, because the way it works is Paris is the first place Susie goes because she sees in the London Gazette Mildred strikes again, and that was the uh, second place she, uh, Mildred, would have uh, first messed up London, and then she goes to Oslo, and then she messed up Paris. So it was the the second stop, but, you know, she had to flee from the city first. So either she's been ping-ponging around for 50 years, and the London's just been keeping up on this, or when they say Mildred strikes again, you know, it's like, oh, this is the, this is the third town she's wrecked. The fact that I so okay, so basic construction ideas. First of all, if they bother to give these specific of numbers this late in the show, then I have to believe that any answer has to be accurate to those numbers. Like if these were numbers that were presented in season two or three, then no, it you know, we can take retcon type answers. So you're thinking there was fifty years of Mildred touring the planet before Susie picked up the scent? <sighs> It sounds bad, doesn't it? <laughs> it doesn't make any sense because she made it seem like she was there working at the clock store for months, not for decades. Yeah, why would she have given up her search for her so soon? But she does just randomly get a newspaper at some point in her face. But it doesn't seem like, you know, that the rest of the town had significantly changed, <laughs> right? Like, I mean, the first no. newspaper happened, but like, there's no mention of, uh, you know, I'm sure the clock shop owners would have been dead (laughs) after 50 more years so uh it doesn't quite add up but like why these specific numbers now again it's like mildred too she's not that old so i would try to like reconcile that number saying oh if it's a 130 year story is she including like her birth (laughs) like oh it's just been a problem since i was born yeah it's an extra 12 years yeah it doesn't account for 50 it's a quarter of our difference so I don't know. I, th- I think I think we need some clarification on uh, on the timeline. Maybe we could uh, maybe we get Julia Pot on here with the official uh, Summer Camp Island art book draft. <laughs> right? Yeah. Where's the giant timeline? Did Rebecca Sugar promote that? 
sort of thing <laughs> across these different Cartoon Network shows? Did people start adopting Master mm-hmm. Timelines? Well, I don't know if they were on Adventure Time together, so this might have happened around the water cooler. <laughs> right. Yeah, that that's a hard one to reconcile, but someone needs to do that work and get it into the 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 wiki. That would be very good. Now, I have another question for the wiki. What is the name of that bar? Because it just says Arctic Bar when you look at the text, but if you look at the pictures, there's a fish on the wall, and then the banner outside is like a dead fish being pulled up out of the ocean, and you see its soul leaving its body via its <laughs> mouth. What's going on with this place? That oh is gosh. a lot of character in that banner. That's so true. I didn't even notice that. That's so funny. Um, I mean, it has a name. It has a, a sign on the door, but it also has the, the fish mark with some scrawled text underneath it. Uh, great establishment of a place. <laughs> Well, hey, it's a bustling settlement. They've got all that fish out drying in the cold, cold Arctic air. So maybe it's maybe it's not just a bar. Maybe it's also a fish market. I don't know. Yeah, it's interesting. I'm just like scrolling now through to see if there's any other details that pop out. But a lot of a lot of these summer camp island locations are not absolutely stuffed with detail. I mean, sometimes you'll see crazy random symbols and <laughs> sometimes you won't. <laughs> There's pink diamonds on all of the pillars in the in the bar. Coincidence? Ooh. Steven Universe? <laughs> uh, conspiracy theorists? Maybe maybe this is a popular rose quartz haunt uh, at some point. Uh, you know, nothing is a coincidence. You know, but I just want to say props to Hedgehog's witchy instincts. Like she knew. Mildred was not doing a lot of radio listening at the time, but she just so happened to catch Hedgehog's broadcast. So uh, Hedgehog trusted her instincts. She didn't give up. Peppy would be proud. I mean, it's really convenient that whoever lived in this shed also left the things that were in this shed. And, you know, there was a candle lit when Mildred walked in, and presumably for the past centuries, no one has walked in here again. Like, what is this mysterious jar cavern? I mean, at first you think it's suspicious with all the jars, but like, what if it had been, what if there had been like a big old mixing bowl? She could have been the mixing bowl guard. Right. There are all sorts of receptacles out there. It's very coincidental. It just so happened to be jelly jars, though. Also, why does the floor have stuff scrawled all over it? And that, like, did she draw all that? You know, I didn't notice the floor. When she's filling the jars, there is already like, uh symbols drawn on the floor but only in that corner where she's doing the jars it's not spanning the whole floor actually it's weird there's an overhead shot where the dog is looking for the magic and it's not on the floor at that point it's actually covered with a rug when he's coming through that is really weird Hmm. why does this i mean this home already has a bunch of chopped logs in it you know, when people draw, like, a, a house in a background, they know more about it, right? Like, you can't just draw this and just say, oh, yeah, it's just some abandoned thing. Don't worry about it too much. Like, whoever conceives of this space thinks of who owned it and why and, you know, intentionally places elements everywhere, right? And there's letters posted on the wardrobe. There's some notes, like, stuck above a window. And there's these jars everywhere. 
I want to know more. <laughs> I want to know what this is. Maybe they maybe they preserve a lot of their fish by pickling. You never know. <laughs> it could be as simple as that. Well, Hedgehog might not be the only witch with some serious instincts. Uh, perhaps. I'm also just fixated on the fact that there is a, a pot just sitting next to the bathtub that really, I think, is the toilet. And that's unfortunate. That is very unfortunate. <laughs> uh, such is the life of a jar guard. Thankfully, Mildred's friend was able to help her bamboozle. The pale dog sent him off on a wild jelly chase into the ocean. I bet he never found any jelly to put on that baguette, too. No, it's funny he never came back to with, uh, like, to even try a second time. <laughs> I mean, maybe he did. He had already looked in there and didn't see any jelly, so why would he have any reason to doubt her? <laughs> right, I mean, she seems naive enough, so, you know, why think that there's anything else going on? Yeah, no no one expects their mark to suddenly smarten up, you know? <laughs> yeah, I suppose not. And he had never seen Mildred's friend, so he didn't know that there was somebody much wiser counseling her. <laughs> so, yeah, I think she fooled him. He has no reason to come back. But uh, I have a feeling this won't be the last time we see the pale dog. Yeah, I want to know more. <laughs> and maybe we'll piece this all together someday. I want to know so much more about these guys, because in their first appearance, I thought it was like, ooh, story arc kind of stuff. And even here, like, again, he's the kind of predator you would expect from one of those not-so-happy fairy tales. <laughs> Like these guys are dark. They may be they may be kid dark, but they're still dark. Yeah, and I mean that's kind of the aesthetic of the show is having kind of like how those grim fairy tales work, like that there are these forces, but the way that the show's presented is just in like this extremely, you know, it's a pleasant art style. The characters are pleasant. Some of these unpleasant things happen to them, but it has this, uh, I don't know, like the, the way they're like realistically portraying how she deals with this, but still in a, not like a goofy manner, but just something that scales well to children. <laughs> it, it's, it's, it's really fascinating, but it also just leaves us with so many more questions about like, well, how, how, how should I feel about this? How did they intend for me to feel about this? Like, what is the level of, drama of tragedy that i am supposed to be feeling here or not and i mean there's i don't know there's very specific moments too in this episode that like i'd be interested to know who storyboarded what because you can just tell some of the things that they were going for like i don't know that just give me this weird feeling like just even when the ghost is inside the radio and mildred is turning the knob she has like these weirdly detailed hands and it just, it like <laughs> provides that aesthetic of like this realism juxtaposed right next to the silly ghost going psh, psh, inside the radio. And like when she's writing her note that is about, you know, you are the jar guard and, you know, this is a serious and sad thing. She never mentions the jar guard's assistant. <laughs> but like she's literally, she has like a tooth poking out of her mouth the whole time she's writing the note. Like, that tooth doesn't always stick out of her mouth in every shot, but it is for this one. And her pupils are also, you know, as gigantic as ever. And she just looks goofy. But she looks goofy while she's writing this, you know, very sad note. And then, you know, the camera zoomed in on her face and she just looks very childish, right? She's got the little 
dimples in on her mouth. And then the very next shot is like this dramatic, you know, shot of the flame going out in her eyes. Yeah. And like all, all this shading, stenciling on her face, like heartbreaking. Yeah. So I don't know. It. It, it does a lot. It just makes you feel. <laughs> yes. <sighs> and then and then immediately we're given a squirrel at the end who, you know, never asked for this story from the ghost is just getting his little hot chocolate mustache and, and beard and has weirdly an acorn as either a backpack or just lodged between his back and tail the whole time. And it also looks like he's drank like eight of these things. <laughs> I think he appreciated what he was doing. He was he was letting Mildred's friend get this off his chest, you know? It, it, true, but I think the bartender let him get some of those drinks for free. I don't think the ghost paid for what that man was drinking to make it through that story. <sighs> you know, sometimes you just gotta be kind to each other. <laughs> yeah. Speaking of being kind, I'm just saying, uh, Summer Camp Island really needs a disc release so we can have commentary tracks. Oh, don't even tempt me. Like, yes, I would love to have more insight into some of these things. Although, I have kind of flagged, Julia Potts has a, a sub-stack, and Ooh. she writes a lot um, about, mostly I've seen stuff not about the show, but a lot about, like, her process. Like, she likes just putting that out there. So I would love to subscribe for, like, a month and go back and try to see if there's more about you know, Summer Camp Island as well. So that's kind of like a investigative journalist thing I need to do <laughs> at some point just to fulfill that curiosity. And a nice plug for a showrunner's substack. Yeah, I mean, she's actually cool. I'll, I'll just plugging it. The the substack seems really neat. Um, I've only read a few posts, but like, yeah, really getting some like personal insight into her even daily artistic process and some of like the quick sketches that she's doing and how she thinks about art and storytelling. And then also there is a, a summer camp Island shop that she just personally makes things on. And like, I actually, again, now I'm just like plugging it. Uh, this is not sponsored. I just like, I bought it. I wanted a summer camp Island sticker the other month and I got one and it was really cute. Cause I think it shipped straight from her. Like it looked like personally uh, labeled on the envelope and like it had a little, you know, drawing in it too, along with the stickers. And I just, think that's great. So I, I was surprised about that for, you know, someone who's also like did show running, right? That, uh, you know, there's these more personal things, right? Like a more personal blog, more personal, <laughs> you know, merch and stuff. So anyway, really cool. Julia Potts seems really cool. I don't know her at all. <laughs> but I just think those things that she does are really, really neat. So you heard it here first, <laughs> folks. Subscribe and buy. <laughs> Subscribe and buy. Consume. For the sake of art, please. Anyway, guys, that's it for us on Jarguard. Join us next week. Until then, I'm GC13. And I'm David. Don't forget to leave us a review anywhere you listen to podcasts. Later, everybody. Our opening and closing music is by Mark Soto. For more cartoon-related content, please visit LunarCeasefire.com. 